the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This program is sponsored by Amplified Peace. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Amplified Peace. We are all about exploring how we can listen, learn, and live differently in this crazy world. Together, we want to discover the impact of empathy, the strength of unity, the power of love, and the beauty of humanity. I'm your host, Lisa Jernigan. Along with me is Julie Bean. Um, so we're again, today is kind of unique because we just uh, finished uh, a show with Mark Nelson, who co-wrote the book Reformation with Alan Hirsch. And so what we we kind of got done with that, like, okay, we're not done with Mark. We're so not done with you, Mark. And the things that you have to say. So we have added, this is part two. So we encourage you, if you're listening to this, to listen to the show prior to this. It'll kind of give you more context of what we're talking about with Reformation and how Mark and Alan kind of came up with that word as a, as a new word they invented, which we're always about creating new language and new words and new frameworks and how we see things differently and actually how we can see something new for the first time. Uh, something old, but see it new again for the first time. And so we're excited to have Mark back with us. Mark has been engaged in full-time ministry for over 30 years, uh, again, which has included youth ministry, ministry on a university campus, and for the last dozen plus years, launched and led a faith community in Knoxville, and is now transitioning into a new venture. And uh, among being an author, I love he's a thought leader. And so, Mark, we're going to let you kind of be our guide and guide us into this next conversation as we peel this onion back even more. So excited, Mark. Yes, so excited. And um, for everybody hearing this, if you didn't listen to part one, uh, you absolutely must listen to it. We're just going deeper here um, because there's still so much to dig into. So, um, Mark, you talk about in the book, learning to read the gospel outside of our own brain, right? And referencing the three frames and cultural frames around the world. Um, but we often only read through our own frame. So what does it mean to really read and understand the gospel through a different frame, culturally or otherwise? Yeah, in the church, we give a lot of credit to those who are able to exegete scripture. People that are able to read the Bible, scholarly look at it, take that scholarly learning and put it into words that people can understand so that people can be transformed by the truth you teach. We are wonderful at exegeting scripture. I think we are horrible at exegeting the human heart. Uh, we, we don't know how to culturally exegete. And, and the phrase that we use in the book is, is it's a missional anthropology that we lack. And to, to do it simply, to try to state it simply, is we don't understand what people are really looking for. We don't understand what people are really longing for. And, you know, Augustine, his, famous, his, most, his most famous saying was, my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you, in thee. And, and I'm, I'm wondering if we even know what questions to ask people 
when it comes to understanding what they're looking for. I tell stories, Alan and I tell stories in the book of, of one story that I wrote of meeting a woman named Alex on the Camino and the encounter that I had with Alex. And I learned that Alex was longing for what all of us are longing. Uh, the best way to describe that, I think, is N.T. Wright, who in his genius book, Simply Christian, which is just a wonderful, wonderful book, he talks about every person has four things they long for. He says, every person longs for justice. Okay, I'm going to define justice as when the broken things are put back together. That's justice. Everybody longs for that. Everybody thirsts for spirituality that we know. I actually believe people know there's something bigger than them. Even if they deny a God, they know there's something else out there. The third thing he says is everyone hungers for relationship. That one's easy. We all know that. Uh, the fourth thing is we all have this feeling of delight when we see something beautiful. And what he says and what we've tried to apply in the book is we believe everybody has those longings. If you would ask me to sit down with someone who didn't buy the Jesus thing at all and really have a conversation, I would begin there. I would say, man, this world is broken, and I long for it to be put back together. That's where I start in hopes to be able to reframe Jesus so they might give Jesus a second thought. Again, we, we can explain it apologetically. We can explain it scripturally. We can, again, write it out on a napkin. But do we really know what people are looking for and longing for and what's the good news in their souls? And, and it's not just physical good news. It's not just spiritual good news. It's not just rational good news. It's not just emotional good news. It's not just emotion. It's not just a good news that has to do with the person. It's not just good news that has to do with the principle. It's good news that has to do with all of those things holistically, not just the right answer, not just go to the right place. It's so much more than that. You know what? I just like I mentioned in in the first uh, episode. I just returned last night from Scotland, being there for mm-hmm. ten days, just exploring the the country, the beauty, and the scenes. And having just recently read your book, I started noticing people and where people gathered. And the pubs are a, a big place. The nightlife just came alive. And I just, I really, literally, my husband and I would have a conversation. What are these people longing for? Like where? This is meeting a need in them. Why isn't the church the place that's meeting these these longings and these needs? Why aren't we, like to your point, reframing a Jesus that's big enough, that's amazing, that's full of awe and wonder? And actually, you know, there's art involved. There's so much expression of our humanity. And why are we not creating those places? The church being a place or believers being the people of Jesus, where people are drawn to that. And at, those are just great. Uh, you, you also talk about in your book, which one of our great, we have kind of three words that really frame our work. How do we posture ourselves as listeners? How do we posture ourselves as learners? And then how do we live differently? In your book, you guys talk about the term listening and how important that is. And you say to listen is to see. And so it goes back to how are we really seeing people and seeing the brokenness in this world? How is that term, like, really seeing, how would you address that to us? Like, if we really see people, how should we respond? And you just kind of said, like, how do we meet them where they're at? And when you talk about, you know, during the different cultures, can you share with us, like you did in the book, about the three different cultures, the Western, and just how being aware and listening to people in their cultural context really kind of determines 
the conversation and how to frame the conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to the to the frames and we we in no way are experts around this frame. There is so much writing out there about the three-dimensional gospel that we present. But but we try to give a baseline and hopefully people will go from there. When we write a book, we don't write it as experts, we write it as guides. And so we're writing about things we're going through. So when you look at this three-dimensional gospel, um, some would call it the Western frame. The Western frame is about what's right and what's wrong. The Western frame is what's about true and what's false. And the Western frame of the gospel says you have guilt and your guilt must be removed. Okay, most of us grew up in that in America. That's that's the frame in which we see the gospel of Jesus. You also have the Eastern frame, which is shame. If the Western is guilt, the Eastern is shame. It has to do with honor and shame, a concept that most of us from America uh, do not understand. Uh, it has to do with grace and disgrace. And, and, and the majority of the world come to the gospel from a, from a frame of shame. There's also the Southern frame, which has to do with fear. So you have guilt, shame, and fear. The Southern frame is about power or powerlessness, uh, freedom from fear, fear, all of that type of stuff, all of those types of things. We never understand that sometimes we're talking to people that see the gospel differently, that have approached it differently. There's a, a book, I don't think we mentioned it in our book, called uh, Reading the Bible with the Damned by Bob Eckblad. And he talks about what does the gospel mean to someone who is in prison? What is the story you need to tell? What's the story you need to tell of someone that is a poor rural person? What's the story you need to tell of someone who's a rich urban person? What's the story you need to tell? What lens are they seeing it through? Because some people would argue with me and say, you know, all you do is preach the gospel. It doesn't matter where they come from. I would disagree. I believe there were very few people that understood cultural anthropology or missional anthropology more than Jesus, because Jesus spoke in a way that the Pharisees would respond, not always favorably. Jesus spoke in a way that the woman at the well would respond. He spoke in a way that these fishermen would respond because he understood the frame they were looking at it through. And so what we've got to understand is how do we approach these people and hear the story of scripture and understand what's good news for them? We need to listen, as you said. We need to we need to move in close. We need to stop looking from afar. We need to understand what it means to, you know, to kill a mockingbird, just a, a classic book. And the quote from there um, that that we always talk about is this whole idea that uh, when Atticus Finch uh, talks to his daughter, he says, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. I think a missional anthropology climbs into the other skin and we listen, we're curious. Oh, we, we are so bad at asking questions because all we wanna do is give an answer. If I understand that people are coming with different longings, I wanna understand what their longings are. Let me give you one quick example. Um, I coached this girl in the neighborhood about thinking about ministering to her neighbors and how to be more of a presence in her neighborhood. And I said, tell me about your neighbor. She goes, I don't know any of my neighbors. I said, okay, next week we meet, you come back and I want you to draw a map of your street and each of the houses, I want you to tell me the name of the people that live there. And it took her about a month to get to that point. And I said, now I want you to understand something about them, not because their name is on the side of a truck, but I want you to find out what you can about those people that live around you. And it took her a while. And then I came back and I said, I, now I want you to find out what's good news for them. What is gospel for them? And she came back and she said, 
and she lived in an apartment that was above another house. She said, I found out what's good news for the person who lives below me. I go, what is it? He said, he loves Coke in a bottle and Coca-Cola, not the drug. He loves Coke in a bottle. And so, you know what I do now? Every week, I buy a six pack of Coca-Cola in a bottle and I leave it at our front door because I know that's good news for her. She did that because she listened. She understood the longings. She opened herself up to have more conversations with this woman because she was willing to go, what is it when I step inside of her shoes that she really needs in life? I'm not saying that Coca-Cola saved her life. I'm not saying that. But that was the first step towards good news and a first step towards a relationship. But if she continues to stay at a distance, if she continues to not be curious, if she continues not to ask the right questions, she'll never know those things. Most of our life is spent at a distance rather than up close. If we're going to really understand the longings of the people we're with every day, we got to move in close. It, and it's much harder to hate them when we do. Oh, absolutely. One of the things we talk about a lot is proximity. It's like mm-hmm. we have to get in proximity with people. Not like to your point, not stand at a distance. And then we're really good at telling people what they need and what is good news to them instead of listening and letting them tell us. And I love the, that example of the, you know, the Coca-Cola, because what it is, she's communicating to that person, I see you, I hear you, I know you, right? So it's like that Coca-Cola bridges the gap where she's more open now. To, now I'm more willing to hear what's, you know, who you are and what message you have for me, because you see me as a person. And I think a lot, so many times the church at large, and, you know, I, you know, I've been guilty of this is. We make it into a Jesus into a project for people instead of really seeing them as a unique human being created in the image of God that has these these longings and desires that you talked about earlier. How do we meet people where they are at? And that's why it was so important when you're talking about the different cultures and understanding the context that people may be hearing something. We try to make it a one size fits all. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna say this about Jesus and then I can check it off because I've done my part. Now it's up to them and they might not ever have heard a word we said because in their cultural lens um, and their framework, it, it didn't resonate. And so to your point, it takes effort again. So let's talk about what does this practically, what you like, what you uh, advise your neighbor. I want you to go around your neighborhood. I want you to start seeing people, but say we're just out and out with people. How can we, start seeing people, having even a conversation inside of ourselves with God, you know, asking God, what, who do you want me to see today, right? How do we start reframing that? And even our own belief in God, that God will show up if we, when we show up, right? Yeah, I, I, think, it's, I think it's understanding that um, we are called as people to start the story in the right place when we talk with people. And um, I'm fascinated that that this next concept that I'm going to talk about is something that's not common knowledge. But the more churches I go to and speak at, people are going, I've never heard this before. Every good story should start in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I know, right? Revolutionary. But what we do when it comes to the gospel story is we don't start with the way it was in the beginning, when it was right, when it was good, when it was shalom, when it was the way it was intended to be. We start the story of God in Genesis chapter 3. I believe the Bible is one story from beginning to end of God putting his family back together. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And what was good and what was right is what we were intended to be. That's how it started. And I'm, re- I'm willing to give my life to that. I am not willing to give my life to sin removal. 
I'm not willing to give my life to a story that begins in Genesis 3. I'm willing to give my life to something that says, you know what? Maybe my calling in life is to uncover the Imago Dei, the image of God that is in every person. And if I could uncover that, then they're going to start to live a different life. They're going to understand God differently. God's going to become bigger to them. God's not going to be the come the answers or the judgment they've always felt. God is going to become new and fresh. I'm going to begin my conversations, not by saying, let me tell you about the image of God. I'm going to be able to give my questions going, tell me about you. Tell me about who you are. Tell me about, tell me about what has happened. I'm going to be curious about you. And in the midst of those conversations, I'm going to uncover all the debris and clutter that has buried that treasure that is the image of God in them. And I'm going to say, this is what you were intended to be all along. It's those types of approach to people, not one of answers. You know, we've talked throughout our conversation about the reductionism. And, and I think the thing that takes away mystery is that we think we need to have the answers. Uh, mystery comes from the questions and not the answers. As a teacher, as a preacher at a church, if you leave a service with me and you go, you know what? You answered my questions. You gave me three points and a poem and a practical thing to do. And now I feel better. If they left I, that way, I will have failed. But if they leave with more questions and answers, I will have invited it into something bigger and different than they've ever understood. I will have invited them into a mystery where they pursue those questions. And so I'm going to approach people in the same way. I'm not looking to give them the answers so they can remove the guilt from their life. I'm looking to ask them the questions so they understand there's a longing in them for something that's bigger than them, that I think will lead them to a God that is bigger than all of us and a God that is big enough for all of us too. You know, and if we really have so much and all that, and if we really, if we just started living, believing that with, with, our, with our whole being, that it's not about solving and having the the answers. It's about the questions and allowing the questions to take us on a journey. Just imagine what we can do in this world, how the, how we can transform this world, because it happened two thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. It's not like this impossible uh, quest that Jesus is inviting us into and setting us up for failure. He's like, you, this can happen, right? And so again starting incorporating some of those those words that you guys talk about in your book, beauty, mystery, wonder, imagination, start incorporating those into our, our languaging, into our thought process, and how that can reframe uh, who we are and how we show up in this world, I think is really important. So, you know, you talked a little bit, you mentioned Alex earlier, and I love that story. You know, you, as you're walking along in the El Camino and you're meeting people and talking to people, the same kind of things come up and questions in the conversation. Where are you from? Where did you start walking? What do you do for a living? And when you met Alex, uh, you know, one of the first things she shared with you is just so you know, I don't believe in God. Right. And then you said something, you had some really um, incredible observations and insights and in, uh, in your experiences with her. And then the next time you saw her, you said, you know what? I don't believe you, right? Because of the things, how you saw her, you saw her longings. Could you share a little bit about that experience and in your interactions there with Alex and what, uh, what that meant? Yeah. Um, my son and I met her on the Camino and she sat around the table one night and wanted everybody to go around and talk about, you know, uh, the most beautiful thing they saw that day while walking through the, you know, the plains of Spain and the mountains of Spain. And how their life was going to be different because they were doing this. 
And uh, all of us gave answers. And then it came around her and she said, well, before I answer my questions, I just want you to know I don't believe in God, which is a really weird way to start a conversation. But <laughs> it was kind of on par for people we were meeting on the Camino. And uh, she then began to describe the beauty she had seen that day, walking and hiking for six to eight hours. She talked about how this experience was getting her to ask questions about her life, about changing her vocation. She worked for the underground, the subway in London. And uh, she wanted to change because she felt like she, there was something bigger. And so I never said anything to her. I, I was a really bad professional Christian. Uh, but a couple of days later, I came upon her. And I said, Char- I said, Alex, I, I need you to understand that um, I don't believe you. I, and she said, what? I said, I think you actually do believe in a God because the other day you said you didn't. And that's the last thing she expected me to, to say. And then I pulled out an old preacher phrase is what I call it. Uh, I have found that it's attributed to George Buttrick. But the phrase is, uh, tell me about the God you don't believe in, because I probably don't believe in that God either. Mm. And uh, I think we could say that to most people that say they don't believe in a God. I'd yes. say, tell me about the, tell me what are the characteristics and traits of this God you don't believe in? Well, I don't believe in a God who's this and this and this. I go, you know what? I don't believe in that God either. But let me tell you about the God I do believe in. Well, and then with Alex, the last day on the Camino, we ran into her at the final stop in the cathedral. And she was there and uh, she was sitting in a pew. I'll never forget the pew she was sitting in. And we began to have a conversation. And in the midst of it, she was very emotional and uh, she was crying. And she said, you know, I live in London right next to a church. She says, my apartment is literally right next door. And she says, we actually share a wall. So so that means when I reach out and I touch that wall and people on the other side are there in church, it's almost like I'm in church with them. And I said, yeah, it is. I said, so what do you think that means? She goes, I don't know. I said, I don't know either, but it has to mean something to the longings and the questions uh, and, and the wrestling that you've been doing on this Camino. Now, I always tell people it would be great, wouldn't it be, if she goes, hey, you know what? You're right. Let us find some water that I might be baptized. It did not happen that way. <laughs> and I said, I said, I, I think it means something. And I think you're going to have to figure that out. I, I never saw her again. I have a great regret that I ne- never got her contact information. We thought we would, and we just didn't. I think we need to understand that our job is not to give the answers that we think are to convince people. Our job is to tell a story that is so beautiful in contrast to a very ugly world that people are drawn to the beautiful story that we tell. We have a choice whether to live in a beautiful way or in an ugly way. I'll tell you what, I believe in the next decade, uh, I believe the, the future of Christianity is for some people, it's going to get more ugly than it's ever been. It's just going to be uglier and uglier and uglier because of this or that or this. But I also think in the next 10 years, there are going to be more beautiful expressions of people following Jesus than we've ever seen in our life. Our choice as followers of Jesus is to choose the beautiful or the ugly. We have that choice. We can live and tell a story that is more beautiful than they've ever seen before. We can put a frame around the picture of Jesus they've never seen. We can give them an experience of God they've never seen or experienced before. We can do that by living and telling of a beautiful story. We need to ask the question as we go on, what type of story are we telling? How are we telling it? What do we understand about the people that we're telling it to? And we need to choose the way of beauty as followers of Jesus. That's like a mic drop moment, like just 
boom. Um, I want to, I, I just, I don't even know what to say. I'm almost speechless because that is truly, it truly summarizes everything that we've been talking about and what you guys talk about in this book. So let me just ask you, we have two minutes. What's next after Reformation? What, what, where, where do you, where do we go from here? Where do our listeners go? First of all, we want them to encourage them to run out to Amazon, get on there, order this book, read this book. Let us know the questions you have, or if you want to have any dialogue with us, because Julie and I had each other to talk about with us. And we've shared this book with others and going, let's, let's create this community and talk about this because we have to reframe our conversations. So what do you, what is the invitation to our listeners and what is next? How do we do this? Well, I can give you a couple of practical things. Uh, first of all, like you two have done, I recommend that Reformation is read in community. I think it's best read together. Uh, I think it's best read because so it gets chewy, as I call it. It gets chewy sometimes. And, and you need to be able to, to share that out loud together. And in response to that, something we've done, we hosted one in the spring. We're hosting another in the fall. We're doing a uh, Reformation uh, learning community. It's not a book club, but it involves people who read the book. And uh, I can give you the the information and you can let people know somehow. But starting in September, uh, twice a month for four months, we're inviting people to read the book and to discuss what it means to live a more beautiful life and tell a more beautiful story. So we're hoping we get about, I think we limit it to 15, 16 people. But we'd love anybody that's interested in that from all over the world to do it over Zoom as we read the book together and discuss that. And so the second thing is, and I know we're about out of time, but I'm, I'm working on a second book uh, with uh, Dr. Heather Gorman, who's a New Testament scholar here in Knoxville. And it's called Lunchroom Theology. And basically, it's this idea that the world is one big high school lunchroom. And we all sit at our different tables. And the way of Jesus is to push those tables together. How is it that we live in a more beautiful way in community with each other? That's what we're, that's the next step for us. Beautiful. Mark, thank you so much for being a part of the show. And as always, thanks for being a part of this podcast and the Amplify Peace community. For more information on living as a peacemaker in today's world, connect with us at AmplifyPeace.com and you can follow us on all social media. Shalom. This program was sponsored by Amplified Peace. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.